Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do you do with a blue whale? You cheer it up. What is the killer whale's favorite music? Anything from an orchestra. My guest today is marine mammal ecologist Denise Riche. Denise studies sound underwater. And if this sounds like a quiet activity to you, today's episode is a must listen. I learned so much about what's going on in the not so silent world below the surface of the sea. Denise's work has included mammals such as bearded seals, dolphins, and orcas, and her research has carried her from Germany to the States and ultimately to Scotland, where she is currently conducting research with the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Her work encompasses so much, including analyzing impacts of cutting-edge renewable energy technology, like wind farms and tidal energy, on the marine environment. We chat about how underwater acoustics or underwater sounds are recorded, how COVID has impacted our oceans, and how we can all become involved in marine acoustics. Please enjoy. Denise, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Hello. So I want to start by breaking down. You study acoustics in the ocean, which is so interesting because people think that the ocean is silent right you go you submerge underwater and it's quiet Mm -hmm. except in the the ocean it's really not so could you explain a little bit about what what you what it is that you do and what acoustics is yeah it's it's an interesting point you're making there and i'm actually often when I'm, i'm giving talk about the work that I'm doing, I often start off by showing um, a slide uh, or a quote really from Jacques Cousteau, who I I think is responsible why people people think that the ocean is quiet, because his (laughs) um, original movie from the 60s was called, uh, I'm actually, I don't remember. The Silent World. The Silent World, anyway, uh, translated. Yeah, and and it really isn't. So as soon as you put a hydrophone or an underwater microphone into the water, or even if you just dive down, you can hear that that there's um, lots of sounds in the ocean. And that's uh, there's different types of sounds. So there are the sounds that are created by the environment. So if... Um, uh, if you think of a big storm, waves hitting the shore, all of that creates noise underwater or sound underwater, really, that's present. And and then um, the different animals that live in the sea are producing sound. So, and 
sound is really important to their lives because light doesn't really penetrate um, more than a couple of meters into the water. And, and so most species that live in the ocean actually use sound yeah, as the main channel of communication. So if you think of us as being visual animals, um, most animals in the ocean are actually animals that, that use sound as their main um, form of finding food, finding uh, mates and um, detecting predators. So it's, it's, it's really important for animals to function in the ocean. And that's why we are studying it. We are also on and in the ocean. So, so there's a whole suite of human underwater sound that is being produced, for example, by ships. Exploration for oil and gas, the military is using um, powerful sonars uh, that can be heard over um, far ranges or construction work. If, if you think of offshore wind farms that are being built in many places around the world at the moment, all those activities that we are conducting underwater produce noise that might impact animals and what they are trying to achieve, which means which is communicating with one another or detecting predators. And so that's that's really what I'm studying. The underwater sounds that the animals, and in my case, um, I'm, I'm focusing on marine mammals, are producing, and also the sounds that we as humans produce and how they might impact marine mammals. That's, that's kind of the, the focus of my studies. Very cool. Yeah, it's so interesting just you know, acoustics is sounds and soundscapes underwater. And yeah, like you mentioned, Jacques Cousteau did kind of coin that like phrase of the silent world. And, you know, if you are in like a swimming pool and you put your hand out under the water, it is very silent, but it's, there's nothing living in the swimming pool. You go into the ocean and even if you're just at the beach, you can hear all sorts of clicks and pops. If you, if there's a boat that goes by, it sounds a lot closer underwater than it really is. It's amazing that you just kind of hear all these different sounds under under the sea yeah exactly our ears also adapted to hearing in the airs and not underwater so so even though we can hear underwater everything sounds a little bit muffled but of course the animals that that live in the ocean they they are adapted to to using sounds underwater and and perceiving them so they are much better in, in using sounds and hearing them underwater than we are yeah so that was something i was thinking about earlier we hear in a certain range, right? Are there sounds underwater that are like well outside of our own ranges? Yeah, they definitely are. So, so um, as humans, we we can hear from about uh, twenty hertz to twenty kilohertz. That's the that's the frequency range or the the pitch of the sounds that we can hear. There's the sounds that are below that range we call infrasound. Um, so those are the, the very low sounds that are used by, by fin and blue whales, for example. So they, have, they have parts of their uh, repertoire that, that we as humans wouldn't be able to hear unless we, we take the recording of them and, and modify it to make it audible to us. And then there is the high-frequency sound, which is the um, ultrasound that a lot of the, the dolphin and porpoise species are using so they are in the 100 kilohertz range that is inaudible to us the high frequency clicks from by porpoises for example they they are in that range yeah so it's a, it's a it's a broad broad band and similarly with with sounds that are produced by by human activities some of them 
can be lower than or higher than, than what we can hear. So some of the echo sounders that we are using to find fish, for example, might not be audible to humans, but, but um, uh, can be audible to a range of different species. Yeah, that is so fascinating. So how did you get into acoustics? So it's um, a little bit of a winded path. As it always is. <laughs> As it always is. I've been fascinated by marine mammals for a long time. So so from my from when I was a child and probably starting with Jacques Cousteau's movies actually. Because I, I grew up in Berlin <laughs> very far from the ocean, so didn't have that much exposure growing up, but uh, except for documentaries um and you know, visiting the seas during holidays. When I discovered that interest, I started um, volunteering for for an NGO that worked on the German North Sea coast, watching porpoises. That's, that was really my interest. It was the start of me when I was about 14, 15 years old, learning about porpoises in, in the North Sea. And then just after I finished high school, I, I took on an internship at a research station in Canada, north of Vancouver Island. Um, the station is called Orca Lab. And it's a, it's a really small place um, on an island just north of Vancouver Island where Paul, Paul Spong and Helena Simons have established that research station a few decades ago now. And, and that's where I went to volunteer and, and help them study the um, orca populations that, that frequent that area in the summer. And they basically live on this remote island and around that island they have a network of um, underwater microphones installed in order to follow the whales as they come into their area and basically study them um, passively without having to go out and sort of be around them all the time. So it's a really good way to, to learn about um, these whales and, and follow them, but not interfering with them. So that was really my first research project when I was 19, 20 years old. And that was just fascinating to be in that place, to be in, immersed 24 hours into the acoustic world of orcas, their different dialects, and yeah, just to learn about their sounds. And that's really how it all started. I just wanted to know much more afterwards. And um, yeah, I went from there. Amazing. What brought you out to Vancouver Island in the first place? I mean, it sounds it sounds like when you got there, the project that you were working on was guaranteed to be the acoustics one, and that's kind of what drew you there. But what inspired you to even make that leap? You just knew you wanted to work with marine mammals and this opportunity presented itself. Yeah, it was just, um, I, I knew, as I said, so I, I started um, helping to study porpoises on the North Sea, which was close to home. And, and after that experience, I, I wanted to learn more about marine mammals. So I was looking for projects mm -hmm. that I found interesting and that would take volunteers. So I, I wrote a whole bunch of letters to several projects worldwide to, to see whether they would take on summer students or, or volunteers. That was before I went to start university. Um, so there weren't that many places that would take on someone with absolutely no experience or you know not being a student yet but but Orcalab wrote back and offered me that opportunity to come out so that's what I did yeah so it wasn't necessarily I didn't know at the time that I would study acoustics and um, I, I didn't know very much about the place uh, except that they were studying orcas and so 
being there I, and helping with the work they are um, carrying out at at that research station, um, I, I got exposed to to un- the underwater world, the acoustic world. Very cool. I have a special spot for orcas. I watched Free Willy growing up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it would be such a surreal experience. And Vancouver is beautiful. I mean, that area of the world is just like absolutely stunning. So it just seems like such an idyllic location to study these animals. Did you see orcas often or were you just kind of studying their acoustics or their soundscapes? No, it definitely is. It's a very unique place. And of course, for someone coming from Berlin, coming from a big city, um, it was the first time for me to be really in, in the wilderness um, of British Columbia. It's a beautiful place. And the area where this research station is, is based is called Johnston Strait. Um, so the, the station is on, an, on a small island and the whales are passing by it. So you, so you do uh, get to see them. Um, it's, a, it's a very good place to observe orcas from shore. But with the network of acoustic stations that they have, and nowadays they they also have a network of underwater cameras that actually live stream to the internet. So people can go on orcalife.com is the website where you can basically listen and and watch the whales uh, underwater and and above water 24 hours a day yeah so you get to see them but but because sound travels so well underwater and with this network of microphones we were able to follow the whales even when they were out of range or out of visual range for us to see them we could still hear them and the fascinating thing about orcas is that so they live in family groups and each family group has their own dialect that you can distinguish. Even we can can hear the differences. So so you basically can follow the different groups as they come into the area and socialize and hunt and you know meet up with one another. You you can hear that and you can follow them. Really, really fascinating and a really unique view into their world. Yeah. And of course, you also hear ships going past and you hear how the whales react to them and, and so on. So it's, it's it was a really nice introduction to underwater acoustics. Yeah, that is so cool. So what were the reactions to the ships? So often when so cruise ships would pass through the area and I, I remember hearing those just being really you kind of you see the big ships and but you really need to listen to them to really understand what their impact is on marine mammals and so I I still really vividly remember to hearing the silence and the, the whales and then the ships coming in and how it just how they just take over as they get closer and closer to the microphones that we were listening Mm. um, through. And yeah, so very often the whales would just become silent Mm. and just wait until the ships have moved on and then, and then they would start vocalizing again. So that that's something that that we often observe. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're, you know, it's a quiet, relatively quiet world, right? And then they're, Mm. they're in there chattering, chattering. They're probably one of the loudest thing. And then you have this massive ship making just big motor noises coming through and disturbing the soundscape. And so instead of talking over it, even if they could, it just kind of shut down until Mm -hmm. the ship is passed and then they start chattering again. That's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not, not necessarily, um, you know, and they didn't 
necessarily always do that, but but um, quite often that, that was one reaction that they would show that they would just become quiet and then start up again later on. Hmm. You've studied porpoises and you've studied orcas, which is so cool. And you've also studied bearded seals. What was it like studying bearded seals? Yeah, so bearded seals, so that, that was my uh, master's project. So I, I went uh, after this experience at, at Orca Lab, I, I went on and studied biology. And, and for my master's, I went to Tromsø in Norway, right on the top of Norway. And my supervisor there, Sophie van Paris, she was studying um, bearded seals, which is an Arctic seal species. Mm-hmm. They live around the Arctic. Um, she was studying them in Svalbard. And so she had some recordings that I was using for my research and what I was doing was to compare the different dialects so I had recordings from Svalbard and I had uh, recordings that were collected in Alaska and in in Arctic Canada and I was comparing those uh, sets of recordings to see whether we could acoustically define populations of seals so whether they would sound different and how that then compared to their genetic difference i didn't do any genetic analysis i just did the acoustic part but but that was the the aim of this research was to see how different acoustically they would be and birded seals are are fascinating so it's um, mostly the males producing these trills that can be up to a minute long so they produce them during the breeding season in in the arctic to to attract females and to defend their territories and a, f- a fascinating underwater sound that they produce yeah which doesn't necessarily sound like a seal i can i can maybe um send you a recording of, of a verted seal that's really a beautiful haunting trill that they're producing yeah that would be awesome i'd love to hear it <laughs> That's really cool. So I want to back up one second. So when you were out in Vancouver at Orca Island, you didn't have your any degrees that you didn't have any experience. And this kind of prompted you to follow this passion of yours and go to university and study this. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really amazing. Something I preach a lot about on the podcast, if you're interested in getting starting a career in marine science, wherever you are, whether you're fresh out of high school or if you're a little bit further along in your life, is that getting experience is so important because it kind of shows you what you do and don't like and kind of some different options. And I think people just get stuck and they think that they need to go to university right away. And your story, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy getting this ORCA experience because like you mentioned, there wasn't a lot of people, a lot of organizations that were willing to take on somebody that didn't have the degrees but you did find it and you did persevere and you had this really mm-hmm. amazing experience that ultimately ended up shaping your entire career. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree uh, with that. Even the experience before um, studying porpoises on, on the North Sea, this was just a very small project that had been set up by a teacher who lived there and who was very, he was very passionate in taking on younger students, you know, and high school students um, to show them porpoise research. And that's, that's quite unique, but I, I would definitely agree that trying to, to seek out opportunities like that, you might have to write quite a few letters and you know you won't always get a response but the the experience that you get from uh, such projects 
and the connections and relationships that you form during doing that field work if if that's a possibility for you that's that's something that i would definitely recommend doing because as you as you say you do you do learn what, what you like what you don't like and creates opportunities and um, allows you to to yeah find find your own path yeah. very cool something that occurred to me while we were chatting about this trill of these bearded seals is is this trill like in our range or not like the human hearing range yeah so so those those trills we we can hear they are they are completely in in our uh, frequency range like a, a lot of um sounds um that marine mammals produce uh, we can hear them you know we can hear the the calls of of orcas of dolphins and some of the fish species some of them we can hear some of them might be kind of on the lower edge of our hearing mm -hmm. yeah and also invertebrates you know sea urchins graze grazing or you know snapping shrimps there's there's a lot of mm -hmm. different species that are producing sounds mm -hmm. how do you measure the sounds and identify them, I guess, the sounds that are outside of our hearing range. Like you mentioned, there's a couple species of whales that are outside of our range. Yeah, so what we typically do is, so, so I mentioned underwater microphones or hydrophones, as they are also called. Yeah. Those instruments are what we put out into the ocean, sometimes for, for long periods. Some of them we can deploy for a year or up to two years in very remote regions. Others we just deploy for a couple of weeks. It really depends on the project. And those instruments collect the data for us. And then we bring them back into the lab and we download them to our computers. And then there's specialized software that we use to, to make the sounds visible. So we're creating mm. what we call spectrograms. It's basically um, a visualization of sounds which shows you the, the time versus the, the frequency or the pitch of the signal mm -hmm. and how loud they are as a colored picture, really. Because, you know, we are, we are really visual animals, as I mentioned before. So, so we are really good at recognizing pattern with our eyes. And so we are using these spectrograms to identify patterns and, and can measure um, duration and and the pitch and the, the loudness of these sounds using using these programs and then also a lot of listening and and more and more uh, nowadays we because we are collecting a lot of data as you can imagine if you if you record for a year or longer orca lab the project that i mentioned has been studying those orcas for the last 30 years so they have a huge archive of mm -hmm. acoustic recordings all the all the way you know starting with recording on tape desks and, and now you know digitally so more and more we are using automated um, processing and um, artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches are really starting to help us a lot in, in analyzing the sounds that we are getting back yeah that makes sense otherwise before artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's probably you sitting with headphones on, studying these spectrograms and listening. Well, I guess you, you don't have headphones on and study the spectrograms, but you're like watching these printouts and like trying to decide what, what's what. 
Yeah, so it, it used to be um, before I started in the field, that's what people did here. So they, they created those spectrograms and they were printing them out mm -hmm. and described and discovered the patterns. Humpback whale song, for example, that we all know now, had, that's how the first discoveries were made. Now we are using computers, but as you say, it's, it's very time consuming if you sit there and you listen and you detect sounds manually and mark them out to measure them. That takes a very long time. So so maybe three or four times real time you need to analyze a tape of recordings. So that's obviously if you have so much data, right? that's not really feasible anymore. So then, then you really need automated methods, automated detectors and classifiers. And we are, we're getting better and better at it, but there's a, a lot of work to do as well. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of a lot of work, you've published six papers just in 2021, which I was kind of blown away when I started tallying that up. Well, that's six papers that I found online. There might be more. I'm impressed by this. Um, but I wanted to chat about some of your research. And it's, I think this whole underwater acoustics is just absolutely incredible because it really lends a better picture of what's happening. It's really hard to visually see animals and to track them. And so acoustics, because sound travels so far underwater, is such a really valuable way to research animals. One of the things that really struck me that was kind of relevant here. You did a study in a cold water coral reef and evaluating the effects of noise pollution in relationship to COVID. Could you explain a little bit about what that study was? And just in the time frame, it doesn't seem like it was a totally intentional thing that you were trying to measure the impacts of sound and COVID, but it was a happy accident. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you can definitely call, call it that. So this this is a study that was actually um, where I was a co-author. So it's really my, my colleague, Laurence de, Clip de Clipelet from Edinburgh University. She she is, is the lead on, on this research and was the one collecting the data, mm. which we then wrote up together. So the, the intention was before COVID, we uh, started talking. Laurence has been studying coral reefs for a number of years, and, and she was in interested to listen to them. There's, there's a lot of research on coral reefs in, in more tropical areas and the different fish species and crustaceans and what sounds they make and how sound is important for the larvae to orientate themselves and find the reefs. So there's, there, there's a body of work that already exists, but there's not that much work that has been done in cold water environments and so that that was the aim of the study that Laurence set up in Sweden and she went and and put two of our acoustic recorders down just before lockdown really I, I think it was in February that she was was in Sweden she came back and then uh, lockdown started so this was really um, a coincidence that that we then had acoustic recordings from right after lockdown and the coral reef that she was looking at was uh, situated right under the um, ferry lane between Sweden and Norway. Mm -hmm. So, of course, especially in the beginning of lockdown, there was a sudden stop of traffic and so we had this unique data set when she eventually got to go back in last summer and to retrieve the recorders we had this data set of very much reduced noise because the ferries weren't going or weren't going as frequently as they normally would and and then later on when everything started up again the kind of more normal soundscape with with all the boats and the ferries passing over our recorders so we were able to compare before and after and that's what 
that study was about showing the, the reduction of, of noise levels just by not having the ferries going back and forth every day. Yeah, that's really interesting that you're able to capture that. Yeah, yeah. So there's quite a few uh, people who did this, uh, yeah, similar types of studies, um, obviously, all over the world last year, because if we study the, the impact of noise on marine species, we have the, you know, the soundscape as it is now, but, but what we are often missing as the baseline, you know, what, what would it be without, without noise or human-made noise in many, in many coastal areas, especially, um, we, um, we always have ships present, so you you know, you can only guess what it would be like if there wasn't this constant traffic mm-hmm. noise. So, so this was really, the silence was a really unique opportunity to study but what the difference would be if all the traffic, whether it's ships or, you know, cars in, in a terrestrial environment wouldn't be there and how animals would react to that. Yeah. This kind of leads really nicely into, you had a paper published really early this year and the title is current knowledge already justifies underwater noise reduction. Could you explain a little bit about, you know, what the study was and kind of what your paper is talking about? So that was really, not really a study. It was more a response letter or an opinion piece that me and and some colleagues wrote, um, really just trying to highlight the importance of uh, using the precautionary principle when we think about underwater noise and and think about managing it and or managing the the noise that we are putting into the ocean for example if you're planning a new construction project uh, as you can imagine studying marine species is, is difficult they are they're hidden from our view we don't have easy access to most of them and to really understand how a particular noise source that we are um, putting into the ocean impact the animals that live in an area that's difficult to know all the different yeah ways we can impact animals with sound in the absence of this exact knowledge we are really best off to to be as precautionary as we can and try to reduce the sound as much as we can but that's really what the aim for that short note was that we wrote to just make that point that even if we don't know the whole picture and how a sound impacts the population and the trajectory of of different populations even if we don't have the full understanding of that Mm -hmm. what can we do in order to to reduce the noise as much as possible at the source even in the absence of it that makes sense so you have all of this data worldwide right like you've written a a lot of papers about you know acoustics and underwater and inevitably you have to have some anthropogenic human-made noise in with your studies and you're you can't possibly just study mm-hmm. animals because there's always boats around or always some some human activity around unless you're in super remote areas um so so kind of what your paper was highlighting was that even if we even if we don't have necessarily the exact data for this area for a specific area of what the acoustic soundscape should be or could be, we know enough to know that we impact it and that care should be taken for making noise. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so as I mentioned earlier, for, for a lot of areas we you know, we don't 
fully understand we're missing the baseline data basically we don't fully understand how many animals live there when they are there uh, how they use the area you know so it's is it an important feeding area is it uh, an area where animals come to breed is it an important area for social activities for for wide areas in in the oceans we we just don't have that information you know we we might know uh, what species um, might occur but we might not know the the detail of how many there are or what the species composition really is in an area and so what we were calling for is just to be precautionary and in the absence of really good data which for some areas we have more data obviously there's this um, areas where there's more effort, where we have long-term time series, long-term data, uh, where we can make better assessment before before we um, start an activity. But then there's there's other areas where we don't have that information, and and so we need to be careful with any activity that we are planning to avoid impact, even if we don't fully understand yet what that impact might be. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right now, you're conducting your research with Scottish Association of Four Marine Science. Do you just call it SAMS? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just SAMS, yeah. Just SAMS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. you just got back from some field time collecting your receivers. Mm-hmm. What information are you hoping to collect or gain from your recent deployment of re- acoustic receivers? Yeah, so the recent deployment was was very exciting for us. Yeah, so just coming back really to your previous question, we were given the, some some funding from the Scottish government to deploy acoustic recorders in an area where we where we know very little about the species distribution, and that's um, on the outside of the Western Isles, on the west coast of Scotland, the Outer Hebrides. It's quite a remote region in Scotland. Um, Not that much work has been uh, carried out there. So it was very exciting for us to be able to put out 10 acoustic recorders last September to learn more about the different marine mammal species that frequent the area, how often they are there, um, what what species we find, and look also look at the human um, sounds that are present in the area. So it's it's really um, fairly offshore or uh, an area that, that hasn't been explored very much so far in terms of marine mammal presence, just because it's quite offshore and difficult to get to, and the weather is often quite bad. So, so visual surveys are, are difficult to conduct in in those often harsh environments. And what um, acoustics can also bring, which we can't obtain from visual services, that we can be out in the winter time, of course, to, you know, when the weather is really bad, when we can't really be out, or nobody really wants to be out in, on ships um, getting seasick. So um, <laughs> acoustics really open our ears and eyes for, for those winter periods where we traditionally lack data on marine mammal distribution. Yeah. Um, so that's that will be very exciting to see what we find there. Yeah. What animals are you expecting to find there? So we'll probably find porpoises, uh, mm-hmm. um, but we don't really know. So there's a, there's a big um, marine protected areas for harbor porpoises on the um, inside of these islands. So between the Scottish mainland and the Outer Hebrides, we we know that's a preferred habitat for harbor porpoises, but we don't really know how they use the area outside of this, what is now a marine protected area since a couple of years. Um, so it will be interesting to see how much time porpoises spend in those more 
offshore areas and find a range of dolphin species, bottlenose dolphins, white-beaked dolphins, common dolphins probably. And the closer we get to the deeper areas, um, the more we are expecting to find um, baleen whales, such as humpback whales or minke whales uh, that are migrating along the shelf edge where the waters are becoming and um, falling um, steeper and yeah where it gets deep basically we're expecting to find sperm whales potentially beaked whale species which are really deep divers that we know very little about and we'll see (laughs) very cool when you're deploying these what doesn't a deployment look like you mentioned you know it's a hydrophone it's an underwater microphone are you just like attaching it to a brick and sending it overboard and saying i hope it lands where i want it to like how how do you do this (laughs) Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we use a big weight. Um, often they are big chain links, really just yeah, big, big weights. So they're around this, uh, for this environment, we used around 100 kilograms of weight for each mooring. And then we have what we call acoustic release mechanism. So it's basically a, a very smart little device which is attached to the mooring. It's basically also um, an underwater microphone that we can uh, communicate with so we can play a signal to it and it's like a Morse code that the device picks up and once it hears the signal that we are sending to it, it opens a mechanism that detaches the weight from the rest of the mooring and because we also attach some floats to it and the device is positively buoyant or the acoustic recorder is positively buoyant that you know comes up to the surface and where we can then collect it so it's uh, basically just a line with all that equipment on it that just sits on the bottom of the ocean and the beauty of it is that we don't have to have a line that goes all the way up to the surface so we don't create a risk of whales to get entangled for example but the device really just sits just a few meters over the ocean floor and records very cool You've had other projects that study marine renewable energy and aquaculture. Could you describe these projects a little bit? Yeah, so I came to Scotland a few years ago. And and since I've been here, I've been involved on, as you say, projects that are related to marine renewable energy and also to aquaculture. So when it comes to marine renewable energy, what we're interested in what I've been studying in, in recent years was the underwater noise related to these projects. So there's there's two phases of, of marine renewables that are interesting in terms of underwater noise. That's the construction of, of an offshore wind farm, for example, where the wind farms have to be driven into the the bottom of the sea so that's a process called pile driving to bring the turbine foundation into the bottom of the sea so that's an activity that can be quite noisy and so we are studying in our group and and other groups um, uh, across europe and and elsewhere studying the impact that that activity of the construction of such a wind farm has on the animals that that live in the area and that involves measuring the source of the of the sound so so how loud is you know the piling of one of such one one turbine or an array of turbines as it continues over time mm-hmm. 
And then the other aspect of the work is to see how do the animals react to it. So um, typically they allow construction activities like that might disturb animals. They, they might leave an area for a period of time, but then they might come back after the construction is finished. And so we're using underwater sound also to describe that process, that, that behavioral reaction of animals to this activity and, and also afterwards to look at how quickly do animals come back and do they come back and you know how, how do we change the environment by, by such activities. So that's what we uh, look at in terms of and, and try to understand better in terms of marine renewable energy projects. We've also been working on tidal energy projects. So tidal energy involves basically an inverse wind turbine. So you have the blades uh, of a turbine underwater that are, that are moving. And of course, if you put these in in the way of animals, the question is, can they detect them or do they might they swim into them? Is there a risk of collision for the animals? So that's something we were trying to assess for a tidal energy project in the north of Scotland. What we were doing was to assess how loud the turbine is as it is operating to see at what distance a marine mammal like a seal or a dolphin would be able to detect the turbine and then make the decision to avoid it. Yeah. So what are you finding with these these construction projects, these uh, marine renewable energy resources? It really depends which phase you're looking at. So for offshore wind farms, the most impactful activity is the construction if, if it's uh, fixed turbines. And what, what the research to date shows is that animals marine mammals such as um, harbor porpoises do get disturbed by, by such projects. They leave the area, but once once the construction is over and the, the wind farm is operating, it's actually not creating a lot of underwater noise and animals do come back to, to the areas as well by the looks of it because there's also benefits that these um, new constructions um, might provide. So, so the, the base of underwater turbines, um, for example, might create artificial artificial reefs where you know fish can accumulate and thrive and create foraging opportunities for marine mammals so there's there um, might also be benefits in the longer term and in, in the case of tidal turbines it, it seems that that animals like seals are avoiding turbines and the yeah avoid collisions basically this is what what was found in in that area okay so construction, not great. Everybody leaves. But after after construction and we were getting the use out of these renewable resources, the animals are coming back and they're able to avoid it. And it doesn't seem so far to be causing that much of a long term disturbance. Is that correct? Yeah, that was fun. But but of course, you always have to look project by project and, and right. you know what, what is true for one area and one particular species might not be true for the next one so so therefore it's it is we're still learning and um you know we, we have because of the fact that there's there's been quite a lot of these projects being developed in the in the north sea region where there's more the, the main species that occurs there um, or the main marine mammal species are harbor porpoises we know quite a lot of about how, how they react uh, to construction and, and the operation of these uh, these offshore wind farms. But, you know, we know much less for, for other species or um, what the situation would be in deeper waters or different areas. So so there's, there's really still a, a lot to learn. You're not always able or have to be careful with 
you know, taking the results from one area and one species right. and transferring it directly to another because the situation com- could be completely different. And that's the same as true for, um, you know, tidal energy arrays. And um, um, especially in the case of, of tidal energy, we are really just, um, because it's such a young industry, you know, there's only a few demonstration projects that are currently deployed. So we know how animals might react around one turbine. But what happens if the, these um, arrays of turbines are being scaled out and we suddenly have 40 or 50 of these devices in an area and right. how that affects animals and you know their prey and their distribution in the long term, that's uh, something that, that we are still definitely studying and need to know much more about. And um, some of it we can model, but uh, a lot of things we, we still need data for. Right. That makes sense that, you know, it's not, it's, I feel like not many things are one size fits all just because it works okay in this area for these animals doesn't mean that it's the same Mm -hmm. other places. And just because, you know, one or two turbines work doesn't mean like a whole array that would power a whole city would actually work. And like in theory, I really like the concept of tidal power because it's really consistent, right? Like wind can come and go, but tides are like clockwork. But when you submerge things in the water, <laughs> you're really putting a lot into an an ecosystem that even if it's super well studied, it's still a natural ecosystem. And so things don't play by our rules. And just because we've made up, we think it looks one way, doesn't mean it'll stay that way. So it's really important work that you're doing. And I thank you for kind of looking into that and doing what you do. It's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So one of my new favorite questions to ask on the show is if you had a blank check for unlimited amounts of money, what project would you want to do? Oh, (laughs) that's a difficult question. (laughs) As I said, one thing that we are missing a lot is the baseline or what we are finding um, difficult to define is, you know, the what are the long-term human impacts on, on animals. And I, I feel what, what we are really missing in many places around the world is the, the consistent long-term monitoring projects. So I talked in the very beginning about my first volunteering experience at, at Orca Lab. That's a project that's been running for three decades now, but basically on a shoestring, um, fi- um, you know, uh, funded through donations and, and people volunteering their time and, and really the dedication of, of the, the people who live there and, and made this project happen. And I think what I would invest in if I did have lots of money is to really um, keep a project like this going and well funded mm-hmm. because very often when we we try to assess projects like these new marine renewable projects um, that go in in many different places even in places where we think we do have a lot of data like you know the the north sea region uh, where we work we really are missing the long time series so we we have nothing to compare the the data that we're collecting when we're putting these devices in the water against. So we, it's it's difficult to say what the impact really is if you don't know what was there before. And so I think the collection of uh, long-term data is what I would invest in. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. 
just long-term acoustic recording in, and also in, in areas where we typically don't, don't record. Um, so the offshore areas, so I mentioned the um, acoustic array that we just deployed on the outside of the Outer Hebrides. We, we really would like to go even deeper and, and see you know, what's out there um, when we go off the, the continental shelf into the, into the deep ocean. There's virtually, well, I shouldn't say nothing, but there, there's, very, there's very little known about um, how animals use different areas yet. Yet we do reach, you know, with seismic surveys for, for oil and gas exploration or one more with marine renewable projects and also with our shipping traffic. We, we really reach and impact these areas, but we know very little about how important they are for animals and how, how they use them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more effort in these offshore areas and um, long-term efforts. That, that's what I would invest in. I like it. I talk a lot about long-term data sets. They're just so important. I mean, it's important to collect any data that you can, especially for, you know, areas that we're going to impact very heavily. But like long-term data sets can really tell such a better picture. And, you know, three decades is a substantial data set. So that's really impressive. I like that. Mm -hmm. My personal very favorite question to ask on the show is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be a day out in the field where everything went right and it was just absolutely amazing. Or it could be a day where things happened and it just makes a really great story now. Oh, there's lots of experiences. Um, when, when that just springs into my mind just just because it's the 13th of September and I was thinking about you know thinking about the that we're recording uh today and going back to my first experience at, at Orca Lab I was thinking about September 11th 2001 I was actually at Orca Lab when when the uh, the attacks happened you know 20 years ago now and and I remember that we were, you know, we were in this remote little place. I think I think we heard about uh, September 11th through, I think we had a little bit of internet, but not much yet. Mm -hmm. So we got the messages a little bit delayed. And um, But I remember the impact it still had on us, yet we were in this really beautiful, very remote place. And I remember us all trying to get our heads around what happened and... Mm -hmm you know, in a place that seemed so far away from us being out there studying those wild animals. And we were all getting onto a boat and, and just uh, went out and and sat in silence on, on, on the water there. So that that's something that just, I was just thinking about mm -hmm. um, a, a few days ago that, that was really impactful to the serenity and, and um, beauty of this place. Mm -hmm. And the silence were in contrast to what was going on in, in much of the rest of the world. So yeah, field work can be like that. It separates you from the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely did in that moment, and I'm I'm was very grateful afterwards to to have been where I was at the time. Mm -hmm. But maybe on a more happy mm -hmm. note, I, I did uh, probably one of the experiences that was very impactful for me was to see my first blue whale, which I was lucky enough to see on a research ex expedition that I went on a couple of years ago uh, in Antarctica. I was doing aerial surveys for marine mammals from, from a German icebreaker. And 
yeah, we were basically doing the, the, the ship had a helicopter, uh, which we used as a, as a platform to survey marine mammal distribution around the ship and yeah, the remote places in, in Antarctica that we were going to. And we had seen quite a few species on, on, on this trip, as you would imagine. It's, it's a very rich area. Um, used by, by a lot of different species, whether it's humpback whales or orcas. Or, but blue whales are still quite rare after whaling. There's, there's not that many of them around. Mm-hmm. And, and we got lucky enough on one of our flights. We were just about getting back to the ship, ready to land. And my colleague suddenly just saw this enormous blow in front of us. And we kind of, we all saw it and we all knew just can't be anything else but a blue whale because it's just um, the blow that they create because uh, they're, they're such big animals. It's, it's so different from all the other species. So we went over and we kind of aborted our landing process and went over and investigated and um, to see a blue whale from the air. That was really, really special. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. They can be up to, you know, t- um, 25 to 30 meters long. And so it's, it's just a very impressive animal to see, especially if you, you get the chance to see it from above and see this calm, gentle movements with which they navigate the world. Oh, that is so cool. It's on my list. So for listeners, blue whales, blue whales are the biggest animal on earth. They're bigger than dinosaurs. They're huge. And that would be amazing to see that. And I love that you saw it from the air. You, so it's not just like a random, you know, spout and, and like maybe like a head or a fluke every now and again, like from the air, you could really get above it and see the whole animal. That is so cool. Yeah, exactly. You you really get a feel for how big it is. And we actually had to ask the pilot to go up quite a few um, meters up in height, which you, obviously when you're in a heli- helicopter, you, you've got the ability to do that mm-hmm. just because our telephoto lenses were too big to, to, <laughs> to get the whole animal into view, whereas you know, for all the other species, if anything, we wanted to go down, right. but, but for the blue whales, because they're just so enormous, we, we had to go up in, in height in order to, to photograph them. Oh. So a very, very special experience. Yes, yeah. that is very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take away from your episode? So I think because of, of yeah, a research um, topic um, and, and my fascination with sounds and the water sounds, I think we can all learn a lot from being quiet once in a while and, and listen more. And I think the pandemic and the periods of lockdowns that we've all experienced over the last year or so um, really, I think, already brought that home to a lot of people that, you know, just the, the changes that we've been experiencing once everything became quiet and we we stopped for a little bit and and really to listen um, to what is there if we all did that and thinking about the benefits that that brings to us the um, slowing down, but also to the rest of nature that a, a lot of it, we're constantly impacting with the, all the sounds that we are creating, mm-hmm. um, whether it's from, from ships or from any of the activities that we are that we are doing. And I think we could all benefit from stopping and listening to the 
to the world a little bit more. So there's uh, various ways how, how one can listen underwater. Um, even if, if you don't have specialized equipments, there's um, relatively cheap underwater microphones that, that are available now that you could get and use to listen and, and record when you are out on a kayak or a rowing boat or if you're sailing. And, and yeah, I just encourage people to to do that and, and see what they can hear and and just um, appreciate what is around us. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Are there citizen science efforts for acoustics? There's uh, quite a few projects that are popping up around the world um, in in the terrestrial world to to listen to birds remotely or to diff- to bat species. There's not so much yet in terms of listening to underwater underwater environments, mm-hmm. but this um the technology is uh becoming cheaper and cheaper and i think um over the next couple of years we'll be seeing more citizen science projects also using underwater acoustics but there's there's other yeah there's there's a whole range of of projects one can can get involved into to study marine mammals um you know visual observations from from shore or from from boats, there's there's um, different projects that people can involved in, and um, there's there's more and more apps um, that allow you um, to to record sightings that you have, and then all of that gets collected in a big database, and and really helps us to to learn more about um, the distribution of different species. So. Very cool. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? Probably the website of my institute. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Or just, just by email. I'm also on Twitter and um, Dan Risch, at Dan Risch is my Twitter handle. Um, yeah, or just send me an email and get in touch. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I thank you for the work that you're doing in our, for our oceans. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.